Chapter Nine of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A personally conducted revolt. Captain Meaghan sat down at his desk, lighted a black cigar, and began to smoke thoughtfully, with long pauses between puffs, leaning forward in his chair as if his shoulders weighed him down, and staring at the reports in their pigeonholes with the vacant eyes of an ox. There was trouble in the company. Ever since Lieutenant Gallagher's promotion it had been brewing, and the new lieutenant, Scully, did not seem able to do more than bring tales of it to the office, and Sergeant Pym's successor, Long Tom Donnelly, did nothing but evade responsibility and stand aloof. From being one of the most efficient crews in the department, it had already come to this. The men were responding so tardily to the call of the jigger that a rival hook-and-ladder company had taken two fires from them in their own district within two weeks. When Meaghan had been officially censured for that slowness, he had had to put the blame on a new and badly trained horse. He had consulted with Lieutenant Scully then, and Scully had accused Gallagher of having been lax with the men. "'And they're sore,' he had said, "'because I'm trying to tune them up.' Meaghan had replied loftily, pick out the first man that balks and send him to me. And now Scully had reported Corrigan, of all men, for insolence and disobedience of orders at the fire from which the company had just returned. Meaghan smoked. It would be possible for him to make an example of Corrigan that would awe the whole crew. But would it make affairs any better? There must be something wrong at the root of things. He chewed on his cigar and rubbed his forehead, and blew a long breath through his nose. He knew he was not diplomatic, that he was not wily. What he wanted was a plain mark to go at with his head down, like a bull. And because he could see no mark, could not decide whether it was Corrigan or Scully, or the whole crew that was at fault, he remained chafing miserably, bewildered by his own inability to choose a course and run it blind. Meanwhile Corrigan came upstairs to the bunk-room in his coat and helmet, and sat down on the side of his cot. It was evident, from this proceeding, that he was out of hand, for the rules of the department required that coats and helmets be left in their allotted places on the truck. And when he uncovered his head, the light of the gas-jet above him showed his face drawn up, white and quivering, with the anger and menace of a clenched fist. He had a villainous dark eyebrow that bridged his nose, and a blue-black jowl of bristles that seemed to be always in need of a razor. And now his eyebrows met over a bloodshot glare of eyes that were red from the smart of heat and smoke. His great hand opened and closed on his knee, like the paw of a clawed beast. And when he licked his lips, that had been dried by the fire he had been fighting, he worked them free of his teeth with the grimace of a snarl, his whole face twitching, his eyes set and glassy. They were the eyes of a man hypnotized, and he was, in fact, just such. He was fighting, in his fancy, through a savage struggle with Lieutenant Scully, and it was a soul-satisfying fight of swinging blows and back-wrenching clinches that grew fiercer and fiercer as it progressed until, to the imagined applause of Long Tom Donnelly, he threw his opponent on the floor and fell on him to choke him and cried, "'You would, would ya? You would, would ya?' as he strangled him. 
it was a struggle that was no sooner ended in the lieutenant's insensibility than it began again like a series in a cinematograph and threshed itself out with untiring fury it was a struggle that increased Corrigan's thirst for revenge with a mirage of the appeasement of it, carrying him beyond any consideration of the duties of his position, or the discipline demanded by his uniform, or the penalty to be exacted from insubordination. He could hear the crew downstairs rearranging the apparatus and returning the horses to their stalls. But the sounds stood back, like a circle of spectators, from his fisticuffs. When he heard Meaghan cough in his room, he looked up from the prostrate scully, for a moment, to shake a fist at the passing thought of the captain, and then began again on the enemy with a word and a blow. It was not until he heard the voice of Scully himself, using the desk telephone to report the fire to headquarters, that he woke to the realities and passed his hand across his face, and looked blinkingly around him for the aid and counsel of his backer, Donnelly the room was empty. He rose unsteadily and threw off his rubber coat, trying in vain to swallow a burning dryness that struck in his throat. And he found himself very hot and thirsty. He stood a moment glowering at the captain's door, and then stumbled down the passageway between the rows of cots to get a drink in the bathroom. When the other men came to their beds, they heard him splashing in the tub. They knew that he had not asked the necessary permission to put himself so beyond answering an alarm. "'He's fired,' Morphy said. Long Tom Donnelly replied that if he was not yet fired, he soon would be. And furthermore, that the crew would see him go without daring to raise a murmur. "'You've took more from Scully than a gang of niggers,' he told them. "'You've let him drive you like a lot of mutts. He's been putting it all over you and rubbing it in.' and you've done nothing but sulk." In his unprejudiced opinion, they were the poorest crew of mean-spirited and condemned dogs that ever handled a hook. Morphy invited him to distinguish himself among them by taking the initiative. He replied by inviting Morphy to betake himself to bottomless perdition. He would not raise a finger for them, he said. Not a finger! And with that announcement, he began to strip off his turnout of boots and trousers and prepare himself for bed. Now Donnelly was a man who, without any achievement of his own, imposed respect on his fellows by his superior contempt for the works of others. He had the power of the born critic, and the prestige. Lieutenant Scully had slighted him from the first, and had marked him out for special enmity as time went on, suspecting, and rightly too, that Donnelly was the sly instigator of half the difficulties which he was having with the men. Donnelly, for his part, had pretended to be blind to this animosity, and bore it with a disdainful composure that was designedly irritating. It was not until Scully began systematically to harass Corrigan that Donnelly came out among the men as the acknowledged enemy of the new lieutenant, and showed a friendship for Corrigan that rapidly became a whispering intimacy. The crew believed that he had even egged Corrigan on to the outbreak which had occurred at the fire. Naturally, under these circumstances, they had looked to him for leadership in this crisis, and his contemptuous desertion of them at once excited and depressed them. They stood around in the dim light of the bunk-room, muttering subdued grumblings of disgust and discontent that were ominous of a gathering storm, 
but of a storm that was still distant and uncertain. One man vented a sudden spite on his innocent boots, which he threw at the wall beside his bed. Morphy, who had sat with his chin in his hand, heard Corrigan slushing the water about in the tub, looked up as if he were about to speak, and then slowly sank back on himself again, spitting mutinously on the floor. The others had a manner of waiting for a blow to rouse them. They made no move to turn in, beyond sitting down on the sides of their cots. They saw Lieutenant Scully come out of the captain's room and go downstairs. And then Meegan threw open the door and called, Corrigan! And they all drew themselves up for the climax. The captain was standing black against the light that shone from his desk, and they looked at him as if measuring in him the authority against which they had been incited to rebel. "'Where's Corrigan?' he cried. He received no answer. He set his chin. "'Donnelly!' he called. "'Come here!' Long Tom rose from his cot, slouched indifferently across the room in his underclothes, and followed the captain into his office. "'Where's Corrigan?' Meegan asked, turning at his desk. Donnelly answered stolidly, "'I don't know. He was washing himself, I think. Taking a bath.' Meegan frowned at him. He wished to ask an explanation of the trouble among the men, but the majesty of his office would not let him bend to it now. "'Who gave him leave?' he demanded threateningly. Donnelly raised a sandy eyebrow with an expression of his yellow face that asked if he, then, was supposed to be in charge of the house. The captain flushed. "'Tell him I want to see him,' he said, in a gruff attempt to recover his dignity. Donnelly went out obediently with the order, but he did not deliver it. He turned slyly at his cot to see whether the captain was watching him, and, finding that the eye of authority was elsewhere, he lay down again. He did not answer the questions of the men. He closed his eyes and watched the captain's door under stealthy lids. Meegan seated himself at his desk and smoked an inch of his cigar patiently. He had been unable to get any explanation of the situation from his lieutenant. He intended to examine Corrigan, who, at least, was not a man of guile. When he looked up at the clock, a muscle tightened in his jaw, his eyes puckered, and he closed his lips tightly on the cigar. In a while he began to puff at it again, with an irritated impatience. He exploded at last in an oath, pushed back his chair, and strode to the door. "'Donnelly!' he shouted, and began to walk up and down the carpet. The innocent Donnelly stood calm in the doorway. The captain plucked the cigar from between his teeth. "'Tell Corrigan I want him. Tell him I want him here, now!' He emphasized the words with two heavy blows on the desktop. Donnelly turned an expressionless back on him and departed, to his cot again. Two minutes passed. Three minutes passed. Captain Meegan bit into his cigar. Five insolent minutes, three hundred contemptuous seconds, ticked placidly on the clock. He flung himself at the door and yelled, Donnelly! Donnelly! Tell that blank blank Corrigan that if he don't come here in two shakes I'll yank him out of that bath and run him in the street. His voice echoed through the building in a roar. Donnelly went, with a thin-lipped smile, to the bathroom, and was met at the door of it by Corrigan, who came out with a towel around his middle, dripping and unclothed. 
the water trickled down from his hair over a face that was knit in a white passion he walked boldly into the captain's office leaving a wet trail behind him what do you want meaghan glared and swallowed fighting down a rush of anger that swelled in his neck corrigan breathing hard watched under his beaded eyebrows the towel began to slip from his hips he held it with his hands the captain controlled himself to ask where've you been corrigan answered taken a wash meaghan struck out a venomous forefinger at him you were he cried you were were you well i'll fix you for this what do you mean by coming in here without your clothes by blank i'll kick you out of here like a dog corrigan bared his lower teeth that's it he snarled like a dog that's been about enough of this dog business between you and scully there ain't no dogs in this crew and there ain't going to be treated like none see captain meaghan threw aside his cigar and stood back from him the veins dilating in his forehead since scully come in here corrigan went on thickly it ain't fit for no man not for no man it's about time you let up see we ain't going to stand for it meaghan in his helplessness began to browbeat him with all the epithets of abuse that his rage could recollect corrigan waved the towel at him contemptuously you old bullhead he sneered you're both of you nothing but a pair of mutts meaghan rushed at him corrigan sidestepped and flicked the wet towel in his face and the tail of it cracking like a whiplash struck the captain across the eyes and blinded him he went past inarticulate into the arms of lieutenant scully who had hurried upstairs at the noises of the quarrel and came running in to clinch with the infuriated captain and hold him the crew rushed into the room and surrounded him long tom donnelly hooked corrigan out of the jostle by the elbow and returned him grimly to his bath keep stripped he said and wet he added there's a fight comin lieutenant scully cleared the office and shut the door on the men while the captain with a hand over his smarting right eye and blinking wildly with his left one stamped around the room sputtering the lieutenant judged it the part of wisdom to pretend that he did not understand the situation something in your eye sir he asked politely captain meaghan did not hear he had stumbled into the waste-paper basket and he stopped to kick it across the room the scraps of torn paper rose like a flock of frightened birds scully watched them settle something in your eye he repeated delicately the captain turned on him snorting with pain and rage what he yelled you you where's that blank blank corrigan he broke into an unintelligible abuse of corrigan the crew and the silent scully what have you been doing to them he cried don't you know no more about handlin men the whole blank company's up scully faced the storm with a thoughtful narrowing of his eyes they'll hear you out there he warned him he hit me meaghan roared who corrigan 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 the lieutenant stood with his back to the door and settled his face in a frown to hide the jubilant thought that he had his situation well in hand the quarrel was the captain's now. The men would have old Meaghan to deal with, and behind Meaghan was the authority of the whole department to crush them down. 
Scully, on his first coming to the truck-house, had taken his cue from Meaghan's manner and acted the minor autocrat with the men. After struggling against their covert intractability for almost a month, he had decided to provoke one of them to open hostility. He had picked on Corrigan as the least formidable among them, and had persecuted him with every form of official oppression. The result was excellent, from his present point of view. He relaxed the anxiety of his forehead. The captain continued to thresh about the room, seemingly in a blind fury. He threw his cap from him, he tore off his coat, he flung aside the desk-chair that was in his way, and he worked himself into a greater rage with every attack on the defencelessness of these inanimate victims of his wrath. But this was his purpose exactly, for, behind his impulse to anger, there was the recognition of a need to spur himself on to a desperate recklessness. And by one of those anomalies that make even the mental processes of a Megan intricate in the midst of a speechless frenzy, he was aware that he was making a pretense of it in order to frighten the men. And at the same time that he was apparently blind with rage, he was as cunningly cool-thoughted as a madman. It was this complexity that deceived and betrayed Lieutenant Scully. The captain rushed at the door. Scully barred his way. "'Hold on now,' the lieutenant said. "'You don't want to—' "'What?' Meaghan choked. "'You can fire Corrigan. You can't fight him. He's too big a man. Better leave this business till tomorrow.' The captain exploded again. Was this all Scully knew about handling men? Corrigan had struck him, him, his captain. The whole company would laugh at him. His authority was threatened. It was not a matter of discharging a man. It was necessary to awe a whole company. Scully did not move. You'd better leave them alone for the night, he advised, and his politic manner set him aside as a disinterested mediator in the quarrel. It's all you're doing, Meaghan shouted. Gallagher didn't have none of it. You came in here, and stir up trouble with the boys, and then you leave me to settle it. Now Scully had a poor opinion of his captain, as a man at once too simply direct in his methods, and too violently blusterous. He shrugged his shoulders with an insolence that was not wise. Meaghan caught the sneer and went white. He checked himself, and, with his face still working and contorted, he confronted Scully. They faced each other, the captain searching the guilty trace of his assistant's thought, the lieutenant reddening under the scrutiny, unable to look away, his eye wavering, his lips caught in the curled wrinkle of his treacherous expression. "'All right,' Meaghan said at last, with a deadly calmness. "'All right. We'll see. You go and bring Corrigan here.' Scully flicked his eyelids. "'What for?' "'Go and bring Corrigan here.' Better leave him alone for the night, hadn't we?" Meaghan nodded fiercely. "'That's all right. I'm in charge of this company. I order you to go out there and bring Corrigan.' Scully looked down, looked up, cleared his throat, and began apologetically, "'Well, say—' Meaghan drew back his elbows, clenching his hands. "'Will you go out and bring Corrigan?' Scully went. He found Long Tom Donnelly outside the door, where he had been listening to the quarrel. "'Where's Corrigan?' the lieutenant asked. "'In the bathroom,' Donnelly answered promptly. "'Go and bring him here. The captain wants him.' 
Donnelly grinned dryly and walked away to his cot as if he had not heard. The men snickered. Scully started for the bathroom with a jerk. He went down the passageway between the cots, stiff-kneed and pale. He rapped on the door of the bathroom. Corrigan, he called. Captain wants ya. The voice was false with nervousness, but Corrigan recognized it. He knew that he had struck his captain, that he would be discharged from the fire department, that he was beyond hope. And this was the voice of the man who had been the cause of his ruin. He threw open the door and sprang on Scully like an Indian. The lieutenant had not time to cry out. He went down, choked by the clutch at his throat. "'You would?' Corrigan panted. "'You little scut, ya! I'll learn ya!' He rolled him over, throttled, and began to spank him with an open hand. The men crowded together in a ring around them, and grinned and gloated in a breathless silence, watching the captain's door over their shoulders. It was not only their revenge on Scully. It was so ridiculous a degradation of the lieutenant that they knew he would never be able to face them with an order. Someone whispered hoarsely, "'Here's the old man!' They hustled Corrigan into the bathroom and shoved back into line on either side of the passageway, down which Captain Meaghan was approaching, like a crew of mutineers ready with their grievances. "'What's all this?' The dazed lieutenant, helped to a chair by Donnelly, put his hand across the back of his neck and raised his head carefully, with the evident intention of replying. But the watchful Donnelly picked up his cap from the floor for him, and clapped it on him with a suddenness that cut him short in a grunt. And before he could get the peak of the cap off his eyes, Long Tom had caught up Corrigan's towel, too, and smothered the lieutenant in it on the pretense of stopping his bleeding nose. Meaghan turned to the men. They shifted uneasily on their feet, and cast their eyes around for a spokesman. "'By God!' he broke out. "'I didn't think you'd have done it. I've stood up for you's many's the time. I've kept you out of harm's way in fires that's killed whole crews, and you know it. And if you'd have come to me with this here trouble, whatever it is, and I don't know yet, I'd have fixed it for you, and you know that, too.' The men muttered, looking anywhere but at him. He caught Corrigan's name in the general growl. "'I didn't touch Corrigan,' he cried, "'and I wouldn't have tried to if he hadn't struck me in the face with a towel. Without—without without cause, either!' "'Captain,' Corrigan called out, shouldering through the men, "'I didn't mean for to hit you. I didn't mean to. And I wouldn't have said what I did, neither, if I hadn't been crazy raw. That's the truth, now. I wasn't knowing what I said. Scully's got me so sore I was crazy. I wouldn't have done it. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done it. He shook his head with a sideways nod of affirmation. That's right, and I want to say I'm damn sorry I did do it, what's more. But Scully... The men muttered a hoarse chorus of assent. That was the root of the whole trouble. Scully... He's been pickin' on me and poundin' me and chasin' me around like—like the devil. And down at the blaze there, just because he saw I was done out and about choked, he ordered me in again, where there was more men and enough as it was, and—and then—that's how it was. And when I knowed I was goin' to get broke, I didn't care what I did. Donnelly there'll tell you if that ain't right." Donnelly, thus appealed to, 
turned an impartial eye on Scully, who sat bending forward with the towel to his face. "'This ain't my quarrel, Captain,' he lied. "'I got nothing against the lieutenant, and I don't know what he's got against Corrigan. But I want to say this, Captain. If any man treated me the way he did Corrigan, I'd have killed him. That's what I'd have done, if I'd swinged for it next minute.' He met the captain's startled look with a solemnity that was convincing beyond words. The men endorsed the statement with a unanimous and confused approval. Scully jumped up. "'That'll do,' Meaghan cried, in the manner of a magistrate. "'I'm conducting this.' The lieutenant replied with a contemptuous snort that brought the captain flaming around on him. "'And I can tell you,' Meaghan cried, "'that you can't stay in this company, see? Not for what's been said here, neither, but for what I seen o' you to-night.' Scully interrupted him by brushing past him and swaggering off up to the bunk-room to the office door. Meaghan scowled him off, and remained scowling thoughtfully after he was gone. "'Corrigan,' he decided, "'I'm going to recommend that you be broke.' He drew himself up with an air of authority. "'The rest of you men go to bed.' Corrigan spoke up. "'All right, Captain. I'm not kickin'. I'm sorry I hit you. That's a fact. If I'd been right, I wouldn't have done it.' The captain turned his back on him, without replying, and waited for the men to go to their beds. They filed past moodily. Corrigan stopped to add, "'You needn't be afeard but what I'm getting the worst of it. I got to get out tomorrow and look for a job. And I've put in the best year of me life right here, at that. I wished—' Captain Meaghan spun around on him. "'Darn you!' he cried. "'Shut up, will ya?' "'All right,' Cargan answered, meekly. "'I'm not kickin'. I'm done. Where's my pants?' Meaghan went back to his office, and Donnelly, standing by the bathroom door, stroked his thin moustache and smiled a smile of triumph under it. "'All right,' he said to Cargan behind his hand. "'Leave this to me. You ain't broke yet.' He winked. If a man only raises row enough in a house, they don't want to do anything but shut the windows. Headquarters'll never hear of this." The captain shut himself in his room, and sat down to face the fact that there had been a scene in his truck-house which no explanations could excuse. A whole company had revolted and turned against its officers. The dismissal of Corrigan, or the transferal of Lieutenant Scully, or both, would not change that fact. The fault was higher up. It was in the captain in whose company such things were possible, and he knew the chief of the department would judge it so. It meant the end of his command. And suddenly he found himself ready to go. Gallagher was gone, Pym was gone, even his old rival Broderick was no longer in charge of the neighbouring engine-house to give the zest of competition to the work. The company had filled up with young men in whom he had no interest and the big good-natured balloon Corrigan, for whom of all the crew he had had a gruff liking, even from Corrigan he had had no loyalty and no respect. He put his elbows on the desk, took his chin in his hands, and gazed at a past that was bitter and a future that was not bright. He sat so until it was nearly midnight. Then he sent for Corrigan. And, Corrigan, he said, I ain't broke a man since I been in the department, and I ain't going to begin now on you. You done wrong, and you know it. 
You should have come that first time I sent for you, you... What? I should have what? You should have come when I sent Donnelly for you. Corrigan slowly shook his head. Donnelly never come for me. I didn't know you wanted me till I heard ye yellin'. Meaghan started like a man who has come suddenly on a snake. You didn't? No, sir, I didn't. The captain clenched his right hand, shook it over his head, and brought it down in the palm of his left with a smack. That's what Pym meant. That's what Gallagher warned me. That's the man. That's the man. Corrigan began to stammer out a friendly lie to shield his Iago. Meaghan strode to the door. Donnelly! Long Tom came slouching nonchalantly in. Meaghan closed the door on him. Why didn't you tell Corrigan I wanted him? Donnelly snapped a glance at Corrigan, and then made time by coughing and wiping his moustache with the back of his hand. Meaghan waited. Well, sir, he said at last, I look at this thing this way. There's an affair occurred in this house that's going to get us all on the carpet if we don't keep it quiet. We're all to blame, and we'll all get raked if the chief knows it. I think the best thing'd be to say no more about it. Lieutenant Scully'll probably sooner get himself transferred without too much talk. Corrigan here ain't to blame, much. He lost his temper when any man'd have done it. If you let him off this time with a warnin', that's all that need be, and your own responsibility for having a whole crew kick over the traces on account of Scully, well, that needn't go any higher up, neither. Meaghan nodded. That'll do, Tom. From first to last you've been the sour spot in this crew. I know your sort. You'd make trouble any time, for the sake of raising the smell. You're a skunk, that's all. And you're out of the fire department, forthwith, see? I'm going to quit myself, but I'm going to take you with me. Git now. Git! End of chapter 9